You're listening to Cultivation Elevated, hosted by Michael Williamson, where we discuss vertical farming and the future of cannabis and food production. You'll be learning key insights for vertical farming success from leading industry operators, growers, and executives. If you're a grower or owner looking to optimize your existing or new indoor cultivation facility, or anyone looking to cultivate more in less space, we've got you covered. Cultivation Elevated, sponsored by Pip Particulture. All right, welcome to another episode of Cultivation Elevated, sponsored by Pip Horticulture. I'm your host, Michael Williamson, and I'm honored to be here with Mr. James Cunningham of Fog City Farms. And you are kind of the OG of vertical farming in California and in general. You were facility number one for Pip. Tell me all about how you got to that point of meeting Pip and making that leap of faith from single tier to, to a double tiered environment. Sure. Yeah. There were a couple other groups that were working on it at the same time as us. We went through and looked at some plans and had seen some compelling evidence that LEDs had really joined the show. Cause that was obviously the catalyst that like, you know, pushed us in that direction coming from the HID world where we grew in the traditional market for over a decade previous, we were used to what we were used to, you know, with LEDs really kind of joining the show and have a, having a lesser heat load, you know, we naturally started thinking about going vertical. And at the time there weren't really very many options from a platform perspective, you know? So we started going down that rabbit hole of looking into mobile storage applications, different high volume mobile racking solutions and you know the same three big players were there we ended up stumbling on pip's website and actually my partner kelly kind of pushed me in that direction and turned out pip had just started thinking about going into that direction and so we all got together and designed pip's first ever horticultural racking platform at fog city farms it's an interesting process and getting all of that installed getting all of that marketing, you know, stuff and it, both for Fog City and for PIP. And it was just, it was really fun all in all. So. Awesome. Tell me if you can, for our audience who may not be familiar with Fog City, can you kind of give me a, a verbal visual aid of, you know, your infrastructure, where you're located and the mission of the brand? Yeah, we're in Santa Cruz County, specifically the city of Watsonville. This is the central coast of California where we wake up every day to a very thick marine layer, you know, I'd say in certain areas, almost three quarters of the year, you know, very often that marine layer burns off by midday, but it makes farming outdoors and in greenhouses an interesting process in our region. A lot of that, you know, presents its fair amount of difficulties, but it also presents some benefits in our local opinion from a quality perspective and a terroir perspective. But it also drove a lot of us into farming indoors to create, you know, a consistent product 365 days a year, along with the fact that California in the Prop 215 days, you know, Santa Cruz was an early adapter of, early adopter of pretty lenient medicinal laws. So a lot of us were raised with the ability to cultivate hundred square feet per script, you know? So, you know, it's a, Funny culture here and there in Santa Cruz, where you've got this kind of naturally kind of progressive thinking 
there's a lot of horticulture going on in, in the South County region and into Salinas and the rest of the Central Coast. And that led towards a lot of us being on the front end of a lot of, you know, big cannabis movements in the space. Yeah, I lived down the street from Fog City for several years and I was a, a transplant to California, but living in that area and seeing that level of big ag with Driscoll's and a lot of the big leafy green players that are in town, a lot of people are so disconnected with their food. So it was really interesting on a daily basis to drive past these places and see the steps they take, the equipment they use, the hours they work, and it, what it takes to actually put food on a plate for someone. It's a really unique area. Definitely. And they've gotten to the point where that marine layer and that fog and those nighttime temperatures are the reasons why they grow certain varieties in that region. Right. Know, it's region. beneficial to them. Exactly. Right. You so, know, as a grower in the Salinas Valley for a couple of years, the fog was something that I didn't understand or wasn't really aware of going into that. And I didn't realize how significant it was going to impact total DLI on my crop at, every day, really. Right. So that probably pushed you with a big push to go indoors with Fog City. Definitely. I mean, if you're, if you need a certain amount of production in order to be relevant, you know, and it's not that you can't get that production with supplemental light and that, you know, in the Valley, there's, it's a little bit, it's a stronger photo period than it is on the coast, you know, but there's no way you're going to be able to compete with the regions in Southern California from a photo period perspective or even North of the central coast. So, but then again, you do get some very high quality production sometimes because of that filtered light, you know, and those temperatures as well that come along with it. But yeah, that, that was a big driver into farming indoors for a lot of us for years. And naturally when California was, you know, going recreational and, and adapting, you know, or adopting all these laws. You know, I started thinking about the market and what drove the market in California and what created a, what you could build a brand off of. And really I kept coming across, you know, this idea of consistency in my mind, creating a consistent product 365 days a year. And the only way that you can do that is indoors, you know, even in the better, you know, greenhouse climates, you can create very high quality product, but you're still subject to fluctuating light intensities, temperatures, and different things in the natural world, no matter how intelligent that greenhouse is, you know? And so, you know, that when I'm seeing, you know, football fields and football fields of greenhouse and outdoor being, being fired up everywhere throughout the state, I, in my mind was saying, you know what, let's do a fall, a smaller, more controllable footprint and build a brand around this thing, you know? And so that was really the idea behind Fog City Farms, because I'd been stocking the shelves in California for over a decade before that, you know, and, you know, more isn't always better. And that's that kind of like American ideal, right? That people are, oh, we, it's legal now we can grow, you know, acres of greenhouse. And so, but how much can the state actually consume, you know? And obviously that brings a whole nother question about where a lot of that product was going <laughs> and like, and an unrealistic expectation based off of the distribution models that, you know, throughout the last few years. But I feel like it's really settling now. The consumer's getting more educated and, you know, the smaller, more controllable production models that have developed brands around what they're doing 
are really well suited to weather this storm that we're seeing in the cannabis space, not just in California, but, you know, on a national level. We're seeing it everywhere. Yeah. You know, obviously the newer states who are coming up, that's a different story. They have a different, I kind of look at it like a baseball inning, you know, they're like an inning one before things exactly. market, you know, but we look at mature states like Colorado, California, of course, Oregon, Washington, even Michigan now. And yeah, there, there's a lot of price compression and things are tighter, but at the same time too, there has to be winners and losers. There's a lot of people in the cannabis space that got into it for the wrong reasons who right. haven't really paid their dues and saw it as a quick buck. Mm -hmm. um, and I think you're seeing some form of natural selection kind of going on in, great in, in the state. And, you know, it can be discouraging. It's obviously hard from if you're raising money right now or expanding an operation that is successful. But at the end of the day, so there's going to be winners. People have to win. Right. And it just depends on how far do you want to take it and how much do you want to bleed for this plant, you know? Right. How natural is this for you, you know? Yeah. And like, how, yeah, how, where's your comfort, you know? Can you be here for the next 25 years, you know? Can you be here for your entire career, you know? And there isn't really much else that makes more sense for me. So I'm home here, you know? And I'll, I feel like our entire team is poised to, to do just that and compete with this market and carve out our niche, you know? We don't really feel like we're competing with anybody as long as we just stay true to ourselves and create a following for our culture and our main, you know, staples as a brand, which are quality and consistency. You know, you can rely on us, you know, when you want, you know, and if you look at other consumable markets, you know, when you get a, a bottle of water, a bottle of water, even, you know, you get what you expect, you know, like, you know, smart water is smart water every single time. You know, if you want to, Coca-Cola, Coca-Cola is Coca-Cola every single time. The cannabis industry has kind of been missing that a little bit, you know? And so we have, you know, our staple strains that are built off of our legacy in operations in California, which are, you know, very much, you know, rooted in that OG lineage. A couple of things that we've bred with a breeding project that we've done out in Maui with our family out there and some things that we're working on with other local breeders that are going to be mainstays and they're going to be reliable, um, you know, from a production and from a consumer expectation perspective. And so that's the main goal for us at this point is to create something that you can rely on on a regular basis. I couldn't agree more. And I saw that in the early days of the medical market in Colorado when I was operating there is especially people who had very specific reasons for using cannabis who were really frustrated with like the inconsistency of batch to batch. And they're like, oh, that one worked perfectly. And then, you know, they try the same thing and they're like, this one didn't work. What'd you do different? And back then we weren't capturing any data. I didn't know what I did different. I mean, we things we were just shoestringing things together back then, mm -hmm. you know? So yeah, it was really frustrating as an owner of a business, but also really frustrating for our customers and our patients. So but the same thing's true now in recreational. People are used to consistency. If I'm going to, and wine's a great example, but wine also, there's some fluctuations. There's some fluctuations. You know, there can be bad batches that you don't realize. That's what I always think is funny about people who have really fancy wine collections and they'll get out that expensive bottle and they'll open it up and it'll gone rotten or bad on them and they're bummed, you know? But I think that's part of the treasure hunting, so to speak. Right. You guys are a fascinating company because you had a, you kind of had some big stones. You guys had some confidence. You did things that had never been done before. And you essentially built a strong brand off of, as you would say, a glorified R&D facility. Mm -hmm. So, you know, can we talk a little bit about that transition from, it sounds like you guys at one point had mocked something up in the barn right. and said, hey, this works. 
I can do this and maybe visited a place or two and got to take a deeper dive with probably, I imagine, Fluence at the time because they were kind of the that pioneer breakthrough company in LED lighting that kind of paved the road for a lot of vertical farming advancements. But yeah, walk me through that story a little bit of going from, I think we can do this mm-hmm. to, hey, I've got this spot in Watsonville now and let's go. Right. Well, first off, we definitely had our hearts in our throats for almost two years and <laughs> designing and actually following through with the plan. But, you know, we, you know, again, back to the beginning, we started seeing that LEDs were really kind of making some noise. And until that point, LEDs really were just kind of synonymous with LARFI underdeveloped product in my eyes, you know, and I didn't quite understand why at that point, because I didn't, you know, I knew what I was good at, but I didn't necessarily understand the science behind it like I do now. And so naturally learning from experience and putting my hands on the thing, I called, you know, I called Fluence and said, Hey, where can I see this in action? And we went up to Washington and toured some groves. I went out to Colorado and toured some groves. And what I noticed was that a lot of these farmers understood the science behind lighting. They understood the efficiencies of scale farming, but they had less experience with the genetics in the plant than we did. And so I started instantly thinking about genetics that would work well in this vertical space. And what I've since learned, you know, just to jump forward a little bit is that I can grow anything in the vertical space. You just have to plan accordingly, you know, but right off the bat, I was thinking about things that would be more manageable, genetics that would work. And we set up a research and development in my barn. And it was interesting because we weren't able to go vertical in the way that we were going to be modeling for in the, the actual cultivation. So we had to be, we set up a vertical space in a very close proximity, eight foot ceilings, you know? Okay, sure. And uh, really pushing, and you did two tiers? And two tiers, yeah. Wow, okay, <laughs> so yeah. I think my first go around was like- No, one week veg? plants per tray. Like yeah, it was just, it was crazy, you know? But, I, you know, it was in, in the true spirit of R&D. It was fun. And what we, what we realized is that we were going to run into significant issues in controlling our environment, especially, you know, when we get more than a couple racks in, in any one space, right? And so we, you know, right off the bat, the plants were vegging beautifully. We saw a great flower set and, you know, the LEDs were super promising from a, a plant development perspective. But we started seeing inconsistencies in our environment. And for me, the first step is always controlling my environment. You could have the best lights, the best genetics, the best nutrient regimen, you know, pest integrated pest management practices, but none of that is gonna work for you if you're not in the correct environment. In my opinion, it's always the first step in, in designing the grow. And so, you know, I've started looking into what my options were for interact canopy, you know, airflow. And there weren't any at the time. A lot of the studies that were being done with a lot of the larger educational institutions were just using methods that weren't going to be adequate for cannabis being a long life cycle, high light intensity plant. Yeah, it was like clip-on fans and yeah. whatever you could, any kind of fan you could find that you could somehow attach to the rack, which always seemed to be pretty hokey. and Yeah, low voltage stuff. Yeah, there know. wasn't really any consistency to it. Not like how greenhouse fan design would be as an example you know there wasn't like a lot of strategy it seemed in the early days behind people trying to move air in a rack exactly totally and you just uh, didn't know 
No, for sure. They didn't know. And they didn't necessarily have the funding to develop a large scale solution like this. You know, whereas right off the bat, you know, this crop was going to generate some revenue and everybody knew that. So we were throwing more money at these projects and a lot of the other indoor farming applications or other crops that, you know, that were being developed at the time. So, and so we could justify it. And so, you know, I had gone to a friend who worked in sheet metal, my partner at Vertical Air Solutions, which we'll get at in a minute, but, and we developed the first ever kind of bolt-on airflow solution for vertical farming. And that was a Vertical Air Solutions, which is a division of Pip Horticulture now, obviously. And, and it's been a pretty unbelievable journey in going from, going from that garage and figuring out airflow, figuring out plant densities, light intensities, which is something that's interesting when you're dealing with a, a light that has much more available photons, you start seeing these different light stresses that you're not used to, you know, at lower temperatures, you know, there's more available light, you're stimulating, a, you know, transpiration in a way that you aren't under HIDs, you know, even though there is more radiant heat in the space with HIDs, and it's kind of a deceiving platform, you know? And so we, so we, you know, went from there to trying to design this thing at scale and make our best, you know, stab at designing the, you know, 4,000 square feet of canopy as a, essentially our, you know, initial cultivation, you know, facility that we we're going to build our brand off of but also a model that we were going to be able to expand off of in the future when we're expand up to, you know, 30,000 square feet. Obviously, since then, the California market has changed and there's facilities that need retrofitting and that are coming available. So that's the expansion has changed. The exp expansion plans have changed I say, a little expansion bit. Expansion strategy, um, right? Look but, at distressed uh, assets now. But nonetheless, that glorified research and development zone has been, has exceeded all of our expectations. And we're five years in now in operating the first ever installed multi-tier growing platform. I, I, there were a, maybe one other, there was one other group in San Francisco that was installed before us, but I, I don't know of any other vertical farms installed in this. Not that we're state. mobile, right? Well, I, you know, static stuff, not, of exactly, course, not a mobile people one. buying, right. you know, U-line and bulk rack storage and kind of doing what we used to do. Right. It's interesting that we both share this odd parallel past story of we were starting a cannabis business, a legal one, and got almost you almost got distracted with another company and, and right. you know for me it was uh greenhouse industries and the trays we were doing a ninety thousand square foot indoor facility and i knew that i just my rationale and this was pre-led I, I was t5 vegging but i said you know i can double stack my mom's i can double or triple stack my veg and i can have more room for flour mm -hmm. and to me that made sense and so I looked out on different solutions that I was looking for. I was really tired of cleaning your traditional ABS trays and watching all the headaches I had from a grower standpoint and gripe standpoint, a sanitation standpoint, and was looking for like an easy to clean, durable, you know, for life tray essentially. And uh, I had no intentions of creating the tray to sell to the market. So I don't know when you guys first did the air circulation thing, was it really for yourself at first or would you, were you thinking like, this is going to be for us, but then we're taking it to market. No, yeah, it was a solution that we were building for our facility. For you, yeah, right. Yeah. So same for me. And then I had a couple of growers come through and see what I was doing. And they were like, whoa, 
where'd you get this racking in this, uh, these trays? And mm-hmm. I was like, well, I had them fabricated out of sheet metal. Right. And they were like, oh, can I buy them? And I was like, oh no, they're not for sale. And it was like, it wasn't until the third grower basically said, can I buy these? And I was like, oh shit, mm-hmm. you know, we've got to, cause when you're starting a cannabis business in any state, it's stressful. There's mm-hmm. so much to pay attention to. You're so focused. Oh, yeah. And all of a sudden here comes this, what's seemingly a distraction on the side, but it's also an important thing that you need to do the thing that you're trying to do. Right. And then all of a sudden, oh, here's another company you just started that you had not planned for, didn't really have funding for, you know, I mean, there's so many challenges there, but it's really interesting that, cause we didn't know each other previous right. to getting together through PIP. And then we both end up selling our companies with PIP too, which is kind of Definitely. funny. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was an unbelievable bonus to this entire Fog City journey, obviously you don't expect to develop something like that going into this, but it's always refreshing when guys like us from the traditional market are able to put our stamp on a new industry where we're surrounded by, you know, crop scientists and engineers and all these new, you know, minds that are getting involved to further advance, you know, the development of of this plant that we've been growing forever, you know, and there were certain things that folks weren't necessarily thinking about in regards to powdery mildew and botrytis and other pathogen development in the space you know and so the first step for me has always been just control the environment well we see things especially you see things through a whole different lens as an owner operator you can have all the degrees you want and this looks good on paper and all that stuff but until you've really done it and battled all the battles like you just you see things differently definitely so you saw a hole in the market and you went for it right at what point were you like i need to bring vas to life i'd say Early on in research and development, we realized we had something special. And so we definitely did not develop it thinking that we were going to be producing a product for the market. But very early on, I realized that there weren't, you know, there weren't any options. And so that other vertical farm that had got fired up right before Fog City Farms, they ended up buying the equipment from us because they were having such difficulty with their system. You know, they... If you understand the racking world, you know that a lot of the supports and the diagonal bracing and things like that that are in traditional racking carriages and vertical supports, they impede any sort of bolt-on sort of solutions for airflow or even other, you know, solutions that have been developed in the vertical farming space. So it was interesting. We were only able to install half of our system. You know, we did one of the ducting runs consistently on the same side throughout the entire grow. And it was like, yeah, because there was diagonal, you know, bracing. Sure, that was blocking it. And there was no way to do it on the back end because it was too Mm -hmm. tight on the wall. And it was still, it it improved things, you know, considerably. But, you know, even since then, we, you know, not to get too far off the Fog City thing, but we, you know, we've been refining the solution and really studying airflow in a way that that hasn't really been done before, you know, in horticulture period, you know? And so we're going to have some very interesting studies coming out this in the next year or so that really look at terpenes and other secondary metabolite production in the plant and how airflow can affect, can affect those things. A lot of our expectations have been set by this, you know, hydro store model of like what's available. And a lot of growers are like, man, I want to see my plants just you know, it's because it's familiar. And it's not that they don't need to be dancing a little bit, you know, arguably, but 
But really, you just want to kind of get rid of that vapor barrier at canopy, make sure that you're de-stratifying the microclimate, helping your HVAC system create consistency throughout the space. And, you know, back to the Fog City thing, I mean, we had no models to develop. No, you were blazing a brand new trail. Uh, Our HVAC system isn't supplied perfectly, you know, at this point, but we make it work because Vertical Air Solutions is definitely supplementing any shortcomings that we had in our HVAC design, right? And we figured out that if we supplied our conditioned and dehumidified air at lower elevations and made it more ready for vertical air solutions to bring that pool of ambient kind of conditioned air and supply it to the bottom tiers, we were, you know, going to create much more consistency throughout the space. And so it, what you just said is pretty big. It's amazing how people are like, oh, I'm really struggling with vertical farming. I don't think it works. And it always boils down to the same root cause analysis of your HVAC was poorly engineered or undersized or not distributed appropriately, or the returns are in the wrong location or your air exchanges aren't abundant enough. And so I, I don't know, I just can't stress the critical importance of really working with the right HVAC companies and engineers and growers who understand actual transpiration because there seems to be a massive amount of disconnect specifically around managing relative humidity. Definitely, yeah. And there's multiple approaches towards it. And usually that's based on scale, you know? Really, you know, you need to pull the moisture out of the space. You pull the moisture out of the space by cooling the air and, and condensing, you know? But you need to do it at such a rate that you undoubtedly are gonna have to reheat that air. And so how you reheat that air many times can dictate your decision in HVAC. And so at smaller scales, you can use a simpler system, you know, at larger scales, much like this hotel, you know, you need to do a more complex solution. And so you, you guys have worked through a lot of different genetics and it was really interesting to hear what you said earlier today was that the now you can grow anything. When you first started focusing on vertical farming, you were like thinking, all right, I have to, you know, really focus on stuff that isn't as stretchy, mm-hmm. um, you know, a, a form factor or plant structure that really works in, in, you know, whatever the elevations that you have. So right now at Fog City, you're running a 12 foot rack mm-hmm. and you have two tiers in flower. So what does that roughly give you between the bottom of tray? Just under five feet on the bottom tier and around seven feet. So you target like what a 36 inch to 48 inch plant or something in that range yep. finished product. Yeah. Yeah. Which and probably a bit different than how you were growing before. Definitely. Yeah. So you have to time it adequately. And I mean, we still, it still will sneak up on us sometimes, you know, but we've gotten much better at timing things because we do all of our veg in greenhouses. So we also have to time it based off of annual light intensity fluctuations, you know? Yeah, you just wanted to throw an extra factor. Which is interesting, you know? You know, that's a whole another thing, but like we we have gotten to the point where you come in there sometimes and it looks like there's a laser level, you know, across that thing, which really kind of is a great result of moving into the vertical farming space. Like you can achieve a consistency that you can't achieve in other growing platforms. You know, the distance between your light bars and the throw and intersecting lighting patterns, you know, is so consistent throughout the space that you get very consistent development. Vertical air solutions providing a, a blanket of laminar airflow across the space, you know. 
it's a very consistent platform for producing, you know, product that fits very well into a brand, you know, and that's, it's, you know, we've got like five to 10% smalls on good rounds, you know? And so, um, that's a, you know, we've got a lot of jarable flour. Can we talk a little bit about, it's a hot topic. Can we talk a little bit about the state of California in terms of kind of market and what we're seeing overall in terms of whatever you're comfortable sharing, you know, price points, buyer trends, you know, how, what does survival in California look like during this time? Fog City is definitely on the, on the smaller scale of production, but our, we have a very healthy brand, right? And so in my opinion, from the very beginning, you know, many of these larger farms, they were going to succeed in driving the wholesale market down, but potentially have the same amount of branded flour that a small group like Fog City has in the market. And so in my opinion, the only way to find security in the market in California is to build a brand, right? And in order to build a brand, you have to have a very consistent uh, production. And that's why we went indoors, you know, which is what we spoke about previously. We are dealing with a complete oversaturation of the market. You know, there's thousand times too much, you know, more product being produced in California that can be consumed. And that's not the grower's fault. No. It's a state regulators. Yeah, of course. That's a state issue. Totally. Yeah. Um, and, and so, you know, over the next couple of years, you're going to see a significant amount of failure from groups that are producing too much product and they're just going to be buried in product that they can't sell because they overestimated what they were going to be able to sell in the market. Unfortunately, there are going to be some smaller legacy operators that also will fail because they believe that just good, high quality product was always going to have a premium, always demand a premium in the wholesale space, which hasn't been the case when you have, you know, hundreds of thousands of square feet of indoor in the desert and different places, just driving that indoor market down. Especially if their cost of goods sold is high right now. Exactly. And they didn't focus on their efficiencies. That makes a lot of sense. Definitely. I mean, those legacy operators might have more of a home in the market in the coming years, you know, when the market really does start to get more educated in where product is coming from, similar to grapes and wine. But unfortunately, the wholesale market doesn't necessarily care if indoor purple gassy wheat comes from, you know, a large scale warehouse in the desert or a small scale grow in Mendocino, you know or a boutique grow in LA, you know? And so figuring out how to weather this storm is something, it's a common term in the state right now. You know, this is the most, we have the most densely populated grower population, I'd say, than anywhere else in the country. We I can't a- remember the stats, <laughs> but it used to be like there was 49,000 illegal growers in California in 2015. And I'm sure, I mean, like, I'm like, who took this survey? <laughs> right. I'm like, no growers I know would answer this question, but sure. so who knows how many, but it's amazing. I mean, you guys, there's nothing else, no other state like California when it comes to, you know, growers. Right. And they had to kind of take that approach towards legalization. You know, they had to, to give everybody a chance. Right. And there were a lot of people from outside the industry that were looking at an opportunity that also took advantage of the way they structured that and developed at scales that were unprecedented and not sustainable. 
So you're going to see groups that are able to withstand losses because of funding and they'll stick around and and weather the storm that way. But, you know, uh, unfortunately, a lot of the middle scale, you know, growers are going to end up taking some really big hits that may not be sustainable. Many of the large scale growers that didn't understand the industry are all going to go away, I think. Well, the, the hits are interesting because it wasn't like it all happened overnight. It's like you, the, everyone's been taking some punches. I remember when I was operating in California, I saw a lot of flexibility or elasticity in the price on the greenhouse grown product one, one, ap- after one year. Mm-hmm. And I was like, man, I'm used to, you know, maybe a hundred or 200 bucks or a point or two, mm-hmm. but to see it go from, I think like 1600 to 800, I was like, oh, that's terrifying. That like, we're like red flag. I need to like understand that more. We talked a little bit earlier about, and maybe you can touch base at a high level on kind of the, some of the history of California and how price has been impacted by things like light depth, as an example. And then we saw there were some price impacts from the autoflower development. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, indoor tends to be the most stable place, you know, especially high quality indoor, (laughs) you know, if you can establish a brand around a fair amount of it and then service other people's brands but it still gets affected by the huge seasonal waves that come from the premier light depth season that one greenhouse full-term greenhouse season that produces super high quality and really you know the outdoor season i only know a couple very high-end you know high end operators that still have found a life in the outdoor space. Many other one, you know, many of the other farmers are having a very difficult time. I've heard that up to seventy five percent of the licenses didn't renew this year. Well, for outdoor and greenhouse, you know, it's because they can scale so quickly. Yeah, and that's not a good thing. Always, it's kind of consolidated to a few very good operators, you know, and and so I think we're just going to see that consolidation happen. We're going to see this big shaking out in the industry, and the ones that are able you know, that understand the plant and are able to compete or willing to compete, you know, sure. are going to be the ones that, that are left. Something on outdoor too, that I always thought about and you know, like I think in a perfect world, which is not the world that we live in today, I think I would love like, yeah, living organic soil, outdoor, California sunshine, the right genetics. That sounds delicious, but I can't help but think about all the contaminants that exist in an outdoor environment. It's almost like Think about if you left your car outside and didn't wash it for this, you might be able to do this right now, literally think about it, but for three months or four months, like think about how much it's just covered. Totally. There's layers of grime and dirt and animal byproducts and just stuff. Right. You know, so that was something about outdoor. I was always like, I love the idea of it in some aspects, but there's also a component to where I'm like, there's a lot of other stuff stuck to this plant. Definitely. Yeah. And cannabis is different than other outdoor crops that, you know, to use the wine example again, you know, it's like you, you're processing these grapes and you're creating, you know, wine out of this fruit. And so a lot of that exposed, you know, all the exposed parts of the plant are are gone at that point. Not that you're not still getting all that in the juice you are, but wine also ages better, you know, with time and cannabis doesn't, you know? And so the outdoor space and the greenhouse space is undoubtedly going to get into issues with, with storage and preserving product, you know, because in my opinion, contrary to what maybe some of the guys up north might say, uh, 
oxidation is not a good thing when it comes down to, pro- to, to flowers, you know, which is another reason why we went indoors, you know, to create this, you know, weekly fresh drop of product, you know. And so you're always getting a fresh product from us, you know. And so, you know, in the outdoor space, you know, it, I think at some point that terroir element is going to come into the market and you'll have smaller batch seasonal crops that drive a fair amount of value, you know, but I just think the market's pretty far from that at this point. And, and really I don't see there being, you know, a a huge market for that. I think it's going to be interesting to see what happens when certain genetics are discovered to do better in certain regions, you know, and express different, you know, terpene production based off of region and temperatures, light intensities and things like that. But I think we're pretty far from that. And, you know, who knows how that's going to shake out. It's interesting, the connection, and you have a family connection to Hawaii, but there's a rich history between Santa Cruz specifically, but California in general, the surfing community and cannabis and genetics between Hawaii and and Santa Cruz. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I I came in really late to everything. So I got to kind of learn from people who are, you know, the old timers who were telling stories and stuff, but there's some legendary stories that you know hail from both those areas definitely Uh, how much of the fog city farms branding would you say the importance really relies on what's in the jar as far as like genetics like when you talk about building a quality brand how much of that is just the genetics itself would you say if you had to like give it a percentage rate is it i mean low or is it significant no i'd say at least 50 percent of the potential in quality product comes from the genetic. That's significant. That's significant. But the other 50% is very, it's a very touchy, you know, you know, very fragile portion of the pie, right? So like when we're, you know, if your environmentals get out of whack, if you have any sort of, you know, reservoir or- One kind of clog leak, pump go out or contamination or anything like that you know then all of a sudden that consistency is out of whack and that genetics not going to carry you through you know so there are some genetics that have a higher fitness than others you know but they don't tend to be the most desirable genetics just like in in wine you know you want that that pinot noir grown in the you know uh, coastal mountain range of santa cruz and the reason why you want it is because it's very difficult to grow but the flavor expression is unbelievable you know and so with a lot of these OGs that we grew up growing that we're partial to, you know, we've left our stamp on saying like, you know, some of these genetics are available to everybody, but we do them better. And that's because we understand how to control our environments. We understand timing. We understand, uh, drying times and curing. We understand, you know, how much of it we should jar, you know, not to say we don't slip up every once in a while, you know, and over get a little over ambitious and jarring something and, up. Uh, you know, needing to figure out how to sell through in different ways, just like any other, you know, commodity-based market in the world, you know? Especially Uh, emerging where there's like the level of learning. Exactly, right. Like on the job training. Totally, yeah. And it's same with horticultural issues. We've had, you know, different issues along the way that come along with operating a facility for five years. You know, before this in the traditional market, you know, you'd be lucky to get three years out of any one facility, you know? Oh, and so, you're lucky if you get a couple turns out of a spot sometimes exactly. where you have to break it down again. Right. And so when you've got, you know, you've got equipment and investors and 
the plant doesn't stop growing and all of these things to manage at this point in a real business setting, it becomes really interesting. And I'd say that, you know, the genetics are definitely the backbone. And this year we're going to be developing a fair amount of genetics and doing partnerships with other breeders to, to add to that exclusive offering. But there are certain OG lineages that, that are just, in my opinion, you know, as the genetic pool just gets so vast and fairly unstable, you know, that I just inbred exactly right. You know, you stick to those things and you create something consistent at a very high quality and people are going to, people are going to be drawn to it. Yeah. It's interesting. I know all the iconic flavors of gas and fruit and cake and candy, but like it's, some things just don't change. Mm -hmm. You know, there are these like spotting trends and people hype things, but I mean, you give me the right OG Kush from California and I'm going to pick that over everything, every time, right? most of the time. Definitely. Um, I feel the same way. You know? Yeah. I remember I was talking to my brother-in-law, Drew, and, you know, I remember one point he was like, I should have just grown OG Kush, you know, but I think like most growers, especially when you're given a good amount of space in a greenhouse, you want a pheno hunt. It's like investors are now savvy that like, oh, R&D, pheno hunting, like, yeah, like maybe in phase two, they've had mm -hmm. some hard lessons for different reasons because there's risk involved and it doesn't always add immediate value to an investor's pocket. But if you're building a brand or trying to just compete in the market, that can be the difference between success and failure in some cases. If you have something really special that nobody else has and you do it at a high level, you said something earlier that I like a lot is people are trying to compete with other people. And sometimes it's okay to grow the same thing as someone else. And now this is your opportunity to be like, oh yeah, you grow whatever. Like I grow whatever, like you've never seen it before. Right. And so, and then the consumer goes, that's whatever I've had, whatever for years, I've never had whatever like this, you right. know, the fog city, whatever is, you know, the best I've ever had. And then now they're turned on to your other, now they're like, oh, what else is fog city working on? Cause if right. they're growing this at this level and they have some proprietary stuff, like I got to check that out. Right. And we do, we definitely have proprietary stuff and even our, you know, our, some of our OG genetics that were or OG based genetics are very exclusive, you know? And so we just like to have our hands in everything. We have strains that are, you know, that are completely proprietary to us. Um, nice. Speaking of the Maui breeding project. But again, there are some of those genetics that are available to everybody that are just unbelievable, you know? And as things get a little bit muddier in the genetic pool, you know, I like to stick to some of those tried and trues. Yeah, well, you know, the talk is cheap, so it's nice when you can just like be like, Show me your blue dream or, what, or whatever, whatever it might it be, is. right? Sure. Yeah, well, I'll show you mine. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. and you kind of you know, sit down and smoke and look at test scores or whatever it is and go. That would be a classic competition. Yeah. Blue dream. It's interesting. So, you know, we get so focused on cultivation, but, and I see a ton of great people growing great cannabis. It seems like post-harvest processing is where quality is either made or make, make it or sure. break it essentially. Mm -hmm. uh, and we put so much energy, money, capital, equipment, and focus on cultivation. But now more and more people are really realizing that you have to go back to some of your traditional roots of proper dry and cure. Um, there's so much stuff that, you know, looks pretty good on the vine, so to speak. But man, once it gets in the jar, it's like whatever you captured in cultivation has been lost Definitely. in post-harvest. What kind of stuff are you guys working on? 
You guys have a new facility coming. Right. Yeah. Can we talk about that a little bit? Sure. So as far as drying and curing goes, you know, um, something I learned a long time ago is that heat degrades terpenes, right? And so in the drying space, it's almost unavoidable at a certain scale. You have to, you know, you have to introduce heat to the space in order to control the, you know, you know, botrytis and make sure that you're not going to get bud rot throughout your entire space at scale. And so many of the larger scaled grows are, you know, are introducing heat into the dry space. And that's why the nose doesn't come through because you're essentially degrading terpenes in that process. I like to dry for, you know, 10 to 15 days at 60 degrees and 60% relative humidity. The classic recipe for success. Exactly. And it's very difficult at a certain scale, right? So in this next expansion, you know, we're just adding on another 5,000 square feet of canopy. So we're going to essentially be at 10,000 square feet of canopy, but 10,000 square feet of canopy, you know, is still a healthy brand if you're branding all of the flower out of that space, you know? And, and so, and we would rather continue to expand at that scale, 5,000 square feet at a time, you know? And we think that as as the market you know continues to evolve that's going to be fairly attainable for us but you know as far as drying you know our approach towards drying goes we have that as a philosophy where we try to stay as close to 60 and 60 for you know 10 to 14 days or so we keep the same temps in our trimming and processing zone so that we really finish off that cure before everything gets into the jar and, you know, we, you know, a lot of people can, you know, they want to move flour around to get to a certain dry room or they have to, because they're growing so much that they're, you know, they're growing it in Coachella and drying it in Salinas, you know, so you're throwing it all in, and, and, you know, box trucks and, yeah. and transporting all this, like that's some insight into the like big ag California world, you know, where like you know, it's a, eventually a lot of that product will probably drive the consumer expectation in the market. You know, once the federal laws really come down and the California greenhouses are able to produce product for the rest of the the country, you know, but, but until then I would rather keep my drying facilities, you know, specific to any one cultivation facility. I can take it all post drying, you know, and trim it and process it anywhere. But transporting it, you know, presents too much risk for me. You know, I don't have the stomach for it. So I want to be able to dry it on site, take it straight from the grow room directly to the dry room. And after that, then you have a little bit more forgiveness. Totally. Yeah. That sounds like a logistics nightmare. Yeah, definitely. So as someone who's been one of the main pioneers in vertical farming, if we have a listener who's, you know, maybe a single tier HPS person or someone who's just thinking about getting into the cannabis industry, what is like one sage tip of advice that you would give someone like that you know again my first step is always in environmental control you know hvac design and airflow and making sure that you're you're sizing everything adequately you're designing your supply adequately and implementing the right amount of airflow throughout the space seems to be pretty consistent messaging from people who've been doing this for a while so there's obviously something there where can people visiting California or in California find your products? 
And is, yeah, is there any other things about Fog City brand that you want, you know, or any cultivars that people should keep an extra eye out for for sure. the future? Yeah, we've got our Pacific Gas, our Pacific Chemistry. Those are both very kind of rooted in that OG lineage. Our Deep West Mango Cut is out there. That's one, That's the strain that we bred out in Maui with my family out in Maui. That's a, a Sorbetto, Lemon Skunk, Tangy, and Scotsoji cross. Uh, yeah. That's a super interesting one. Rare dankness. And, uh, you know, there, and then there's other genetics that we're constantly bringing to see how well they fit into the fold. We're going to be doing some work with finest genetics this year to develop some stuff. Down in Southern California, Haven is one of our premier partners. From a retail perspective, go visit your local Haven for your Fog City products down there. In the Santa Cruz region, The Hook is one of our great partners in, in Santa Cruz. And if you're in the Bay Area, you can check us out at, at Barbary Coast. Nice. Uh, Barbary Sunset is, is specifically one of the spots that carries us up there. So among others, but those are the first that come to mind. Awesome. So, Very yeah. cool. But James, it's always a pleasure to sit down and talk with you. I know we'll be talking more. So I'll say until the next episode. Right on, man. All right, brother. I appreciate Thank you. you very Thanks, much, brother. Man. Yeah, likewise. Thanks for listening to Cultivation Elevated. Full show notes for each episode, which includes a summary, key takeaways, quotes, and any resources mentioned are available at pip-horticulture.com forward slash podcast. Be sure to follow and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you're enjoying the content and getting value from these episodes, please leave us a rating and a review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash cultivation elevated. We'll be sure to read these out on future episodes.